After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi, everyone. It's Raghu Marcus from Mind Rolling. David and I did a wonderful interview that's coming up. But before I even introduce it, I just want to remind everyone we're at that time of the year where we have the holidays. And it's an opportunity for you to help us out further with Amazon and purchasing Christmas items from Amazon. There's still a week to go, and Amazon delivers. So please use our portal that you find on mindpodnetwork.com to Amazon. Bookmark that link or just use it to order your gifts this holiday season. I sound like a real commercial now. Uh, What to do? I know that there's plenty of folks out there Buying stuff through Amazon and elsewhere, and through Amazon, that's a way for, to help us. Or continue to do what, what many people are doing, which is small recurring donations, like $9 a month is fantastic. It's easy for you, and it's uh, great for the network, because we're still working on all sorts of different projects to make this uh, more better for everybody, more courses, more platform, the app platform, and... Uh, just adding uh, more of these incredible conscious uh, podcasters. You know, we have Ramdas, we have Krishnadas, we have Jack, we have Sharon, we have Joseph, we have Lama Suryadas. We have, uh, of course, us here at Mind Rolling. We have Noah Lampert, who's doing podcasts now. Chris Grosso. Danny Goldberg, who uh, just love what he's doing with his podcast. If you haven't listened to Danny, please get over there. I mean, he has he had Roseanne Arquette on, or it's coming on. Uh, it's just, uh, he knows some pretty interesting people. And it's called Rock and Rolls, R-O-L-E-S. Okay, so uh, th- enough of that. It is the time of year, though, that we do have to ask for support. That's when people are more willing to support, because... Uh, it's the giving season. Here's a podcast that David and I did with Rabbi Rami. Okay. And now, Rabbi, I wish I had a rabbi when I was going to Jewish school. Okay. I just wish I had anyone like this. Uh, he's fantastic. I went to school and uh, I won't even tell you what some of my teachers, never mind the rabbi, were like. It was pretty awful. 
they, of course, they, some of them came from concentration camps, so you can't kind of blame them. They were pretty messed up individuals. Uh, Ra- Rabbi Rami, on the other hand, uh, by the way, he has something called One River Foundation, and he's got a book. Oh, go to Amazon and get The Golden Rule and The Games People Play. Wonderful book. And so the rabbi is about the opposite of the conservative rabbi that I uh, went to the synagogue uh, with, or not with, but sat in front of, got bar mitzvahed by. He is, he would be under the category all one, which Maharaji Nimkaroli Baba said to us, there is only one, Jesus, Buddha, Hanuman, one, one, one. So he's he comes from that. He was sitting zazen in '68, and he disappeared, and had this uh, sartori experience. So, uh, and I love what he talks about. And we talk about grace, um, awakening to grace. We talk about uh, being at home with the paradox. That's he says is a Jewish uniqueness and. Uh, with living life, uh, with the paradoxes in life, uh, talks about argument and doubt and um, fantastic ways. So, Rabbi Rami Shapiro, uh, you're going to enjoy this podcast. So, here's David and I and the Rabbi on Mind Rolling. Hello, and welcome to Mind Rolling, another edition with Raghu Marcus, myself, David Silver, and our honored guest, Rabbi Rami Shapiro. And we're, we're pretty thrilled to have him on the show. He's a busy man, and uh, we've been checking his blogs and his videos and his site, and there are just so many synchronicities and parallels to the kind of people we've been having on the show for three years, Ram Dass and Jack Kornfield and so on, and welcome. Well, no, my pleasure. Thank you. So do you have other people besides Jews? No. On no, the no, show? No, no, no. <laughs> Ram Dass, Bornfield, yeah. Shapiro. I mean, it's only two Well, years. you know, uh, being in India, when I went back, went to India when Ram Dass went back the second time, we looked around at one point and we went, this is rather odd. Why are there so many Jews here? Yeah. And, and, the, and the other thing is, uh, and people who hear this podcast know this, I also do a podcast with Ram Dass, taking his talks and introducing them and so on. Uh, as soon as I got to to meet Neem Karoli Baba, and I know you've you've had a whole thing with my uh, ex-wife who wrote that wonderful book, Love Everyone, and you had her on your show. Uh, as soon as my I, whole thing, you just mean I had her on the show. Yeah, that was, yeah. <laughs> it was a whole to do. Uh, and, we know where this podcast is going. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's his ex-wife. Now we know why. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I uh, first day with Maharaji, he said to me, "Where's your cross?" And I'm thinking, cross? Like, I'm Jewish. What do you mean? And then later on, I asked him how to meditate, and he said, meditate like Christ. He was only lo- he was lost in love with everyone. And there was a whole big story ensued from there. And, and he had a, a like, New Testament we would read. And all. I had never, ever read the New Testament. In fact, I went to, uh, like, a yeshiva, Right, it's called Talmud Torah. I'm from Montreal, and uh, the teacher that I had had come from the camps. He had numbers on his arm, and uh, and very angry, obviously, uh, person. And he, not obviously, but he uh, instilled in us that Christ wasn't good. Mm-hmm. Okay, back in those days, 
And so, not that I took that on, but I had no, nothing going on about Christ whatsoever. And here I am with my quote-unquote Hindu guru, and all he's talking about is Christ. (laughs) It was really strange. So... Uh, but one of the the other things, of course, and 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 David talked about synchronicity with with you and what you represent, and and uh, the biggest thing that happened was for us at that time was he would stick his finger out at us and go subek, which in Hindi means all one. There is only one. Christ, Hanuman, are one. Krishna, Ram, Buddha. All of it, one, one, one. I mean, it was very, very definitive. And you, if nothing else, represent that all one as far as I'm concerned. And so I'd love to hear from you. How did this all happen for you? And and we also talk when we have our guests on a little bit about what were the transformers when you were young? What are the things that that really uh, brought you into a space where you understood there was a path to being happy, shall we say it in the most simplistic terms? Mm. Well, okay. So I, I would, well, later on we have to talk about, I, I would take issue with the happy part and I would take <laughs> issue with the path part, but I can, I can answer the first part pretty straightforwardly. Uh, yeah. I mean, I grew up, I guess, similarly to the way you did, uh, Raghu, that, you know, in an Orthodox uh, environment, Jewish, uh, yeah, I went through my bar mitzvah a couple of years after that. I mean, it was meaningless. It was just something you did, right? But in at the age of 16, I was a, a junior in high school. Two teachers in the high school social studies department went to India and came back completely enthused about all things uh, Buddhist and Hindu. And they started teaching a class they called Asian Civilization. I took the class. I read a book on how to meditate. And uh, the summer between my junior and senior years in high school, I had what I would call, I guess, a mini Kensho experience thrown from the Zen, using Zen vocabulary, a mini enlightenment. So what I mean by that was something happened so that for a period of time, Rami was gone. And when Rami came back, I was absolutely convinced that not only, you know, as it says in the Rig Veda, truth is one, different people call it by different names, but the fact that everything was one. I mean, you and I and I mean, the deities and uh, the trees and the grass and, you know, everything from, from the, the smallest particle uh, to, to the, you know, the ends of the multiverse, if there is such a thing as the ends, are all manifestations of a singular reality. And I was convinced of that at the age of 16. Mm. And then... You know, once you have that experience once, my my response was, got to get it again. And, you know, so I kept trying to do that, which, of course, is absurd. But that's what drew me into a uh, study of Buddhism and then Hinduism, all the while maintaining my Jewish identity and trying to find in Judaism what I was, the practices or something similar to it that I was uh, training in in these other traditions, which I did. I mean, but in the end, now, 65 years old, I think it's all a distraction. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I'm a rabbi and I'm Jewish and I do all these things and I give all these lectures, but really it's a distraction from real, realizing right now at this moment, you know, what the Hindus call, you know, tat tvam asi, thou art that, 
or in uh, Hebrew, Ein Od Milvado from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35, I think. Uh, there's nothing but God. So whether you call it God or reality or nature, whatever it is, there's, there is no path to that, you know, uh, to that understanding. It's, it's reality. It's happening right now in, with, and as you. So trying to make it happen is, I don't know what we say, gilding the lily, something like that. So uh, now I practice what I practice for the sheer joy of just practicing it. I don't expect anything uh, from, from any of it. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but... It makes you know, a lot of sense to me. Uh, yeah, actually. Uh, the only thing about the word path is that maybe I would modify that a touch because I needed not a path. I needed no religious path. I'm not part of no religion, have no interest in organized religion, never did. But my own kind of roadway, you know, my own map, uh, I can trace it. You know, that if I hadn't taken certain, uh, you know, certain paths I, is all I can say, going to see someone who had wisdom, you know, like I remember going to see this uh, incredible singer and guru, uh, Keshava Das, uh, in the late 70s, and I'd never heard of him. He came from India and he came to a meditation I went to, and what he, all he did was tell these little incredibly funny stories, fantastic little stories, and then he sang. And he was by far and away, by far and away, uh, the most amazing singer I've ever, or a kirtan singer I've ever mm. come across. I remember coming out of that thing and going, I'm so glad I took the subway down to Hudson Street from the Upper West Side and came to see this guy. That was a path to me. Yeah, you know, I agree with that. That's, that's, I wasn't thinking along those terms. Sure, if I look back at my life, I can see a lot of twists and turns, and I can, I can tell you a story that, that gives me, you know, gives a sense of path and, and time and distance that path implies. I just meant uh, that, that the reality, you know, that when Krishnamurti says there is no path to truth, that's what I was thinking of. I mean, there's just no way to get from here to there because there's no there. It's all right. here, that kind of thing. Uh, and then happiness is not my big thing. No? <laughs> no. You look happy, though. I'm happy. I'm happy today. You know, give, give me a second and I'll be sad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just reality. Sometimes I'm happy, sometimes I'm not. Mm. And I don't care one way or the other, really. Yeah. It's, just, it's just whatever's happening at the moment. Yeah, and of course, I was being a little bit uh, trite by saying happy. What I meant was that uh, the realization at some point that there is another reality other than the one that we have been stuck in due to habitual patterns and how we grew up and the culture that we grew up in and so on and so forth. And uh, everybody has a certain moment, I think, that they realize, okay, there is, uh, and I call it, there is a path, there is a way. And people pursue all sorts of different methods and methodologies and so on. And ultimately, of course, it is true that... Uh, the last thing to go is giving up any of these methods because they're just uh, they're just methods. They don't, in and of themselves, reveal anything. But right. we have, uh, and I'll, I'll say, we have a lot of uh, listeners, Rami, who are millennials and who are interested or not that interested in any of the isms, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, and so on. They're interested in how to balance their lives day to day. 
and what are the things that uh, you know we can offer and so we always talk to our guests about those kinds of things that can can just point away or just a little bit of a meditation practice that allows one to get a grip on their minds so that they're not completely taken over by uh, by mind and ego and so on so that that's the sort of starting point that I was talking about in terms of sharing something which is of practical value in terms of trotting your day-to-day life. The, the most practical thing one can do to, uh, I don't know if balance is the word you want to use, but whatever, whatever you know, get, get some kind of balance or return to center or get grounded in the moment, in my opinion and through my experience, is a mantra practice whether you're chanting in Arabic or Hebrew or Sanskrit or Pali or, or English, it doesn't really make a difference. And what the phrase is doesn't make any difference as long as it speaks to you in some way that it's in, in Judaism. When you're taught mantra practice, you're given one or you, you choose one and you have to work it for 40 days and 40 nights. And if you manage to get through the entire 40 day, 40 night period, you know, that's your mantra because that you stayed with it. If you drop it on day 20 or day 39, it wasn't your mantra. You find another word or phrase. So, uh, but, but having something to work with and to repeat throughout the day, if you can remember to do it, but especially at those moments when you are feeling really imbalanced, aggravated, what Judaism calls being trapped in mohin de katnut, narrow mind, the fearful mind, stricken mind, uh, just immediately, in my experience, shifts, shifts you out of that and into this, what Judaism calls mochin, the godlet, spacious mind, Buddha mind. And there's, there's nothing easier to do. It's hard to do it wrong. Uh, it's the most practical thing I know. And you don't have to spend, you don't have to set aside certain time of the day to do it, though I happen to do that also. But it's it's just something you can you can do throughout the day, and especially having a spiritual toolbox when you're in a moment of crisis that you can just pull on or pull out and use. And you know, I've been doing it a long time, but in my experience, it never fails. Hmm. Okay. What? Now, to follow that up a little bit, I want to pursue you a little bit about the happiness thing, um, only because, you know. And, and really, it's the only reason I would even question you about it is because of His Holiness Himself, you know. And 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 He, I love the Dalai Lama for many reasons. But one of the reasons is he tends, even though his some of his talks are incredibly esoteric and dense, he still manages to 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 just say these pithy things that that blow you away. And he does say, "My religion is kindness," right? And those few words, you know obviously very transformative for, for a lot of people because it's, okay, I'll, I, I can do that, you know. But I think there's also a tenet of, of, of at least his kind of Buddhism, which says everybody wants to be happy. Right. And therefore, the altruism that, that is part and parcel of everyday Buddhist practice uh, is there to try and uh, alleviate suffering. But I'd, I'd like to get your nuance on that. Not I'm not creating a dialectic here. I, I understand what you mean about the difficulties of the word happiness. But what is your feeling about that pursuit, you know, and, and, and that process? Where does it lead you if not happiness? Well, okay, so, so you know, trying to 
step into the the Buddhist frame for a conversation. Yeah, I mean, everything is in the process of emptying, you know, shunya. And even happiness, happiness is not a steady state thing. So sure, people are desirous, you know, they're driven by desire. That's the second noble truth. In this case, maybe the desire to be happy. And when they're unhappy, um, which is probably caused to a great extent by the desire to be happy. <laughs> if you didn't want to be happy and you were unhappy, you wouldn't care. So, so I'm, I'm just suggesting that we try not to put a, a brass ring out there and say, oh, you know, this is what you should be grasped. This is what you need to grasp hold of. And if you're not happy, something's wrong with you. Uh, I prefer uh, the book of Ecclesiastes chapter three, where he says there's a time for everything under heaven. There's a time to be happy, a time to be sad, a time to be angry, a time to be loving. The, the question for me is what time is it? You know, and I want to be in sync with or in harmony with the, that moment in my life. And they pass because the Buddha's right. Everything is in a state of uh, constant flux and, and emptying. There's no, nothing that's, that's permanent, which Ecclesiastes also says in the very second verse of the book. But uh, so, so I, I think when you're not grasping and you're not driven by a desire to attain one state or another, whether we call it happiness or whatever it is, uh, I think you are simply mm, aware, awake, in, with, as to the moment. And that's what I'm looking to do. Mm. Of course, desiring that is just as bad as desiring anything else. <laughs> You know, that's, that's very lucid. That answers the question, I think, 100% to me at any rate. Raghu, what, you, had, you had something you wanted to add? One of the things that I was reading, going through some of your work and writings, uh, that struck me, and I, I'd love for us to, uh, for you to flesh this out, it was, the, it's a, as you said, a very unique thing in Judaism. And it's, being at home with paradox. And you talked about uh, argument and doubt. I think those are two uh, things that uh, are quite important because God knows. I, I think they're important. Certainly dealing with doubt is important. And, and, uh, and talk about argument and what you mean by that. And what, 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 uh, what is unique at being at home with paradox? Well, I, I'm not, uh, let's separate paradox and, from argument and doubt. I think Zen is also very much at home with paradox. Mm. So I don't want to make some claim that Judaism is, is unique in that regard. But if I had to think, I was invited a few years ago to um, a conference in Delhi at the Ramakrishna Mission in celebration of uh, Swami Vivekananda's 150th birthday anniversary. And the topic was based on his 1893 Parliament of World Religions uh, talk in Chicago. Uh, and, and he talked about every religion has something to bring to the world, to, to the banquet of, of uh, spirituality, world spirituality. And so my, my, the topic was, what does Judaism bring? And I said, not unique to me, but I said that uh, borrowing from Amos Oz, the Israeli novelist, I think Nobel prize winner. Uh, Amos Oz defines Judaism as a civilization of argument and doubt, that, oh. that we argue about everything. And a well-educated Jewish person, meaning educated within Judaism itself, not in some other field. But if you're 
really a, a Jewishly literate, you are trained to hold as many conflicting points of view in your head on the same subject as possible. So you just carry on all sides of the argument because no side is the side. And eventually you can step out of all, like you said earlier with the millennials, isms and ideologies and crack the whole thing by carrying around this creative cognitive dissonance of, uh, you know, of, of argument and doubt in your head. So I was saying that, that Judaism is intrinsically iconoclastic, meaning, uh, I mean, it says that we're not to have any images of God. And that means not simply um, graven images, but, but any kind of theology. And there's nothing, you know, you, you can say, have no God before me, you know, in uh, the Ten Commandments, and then you can have no idea of God at all. So it's, it's extremely iconoclastic. And that is incredibly liberating. You, you leave a space for God, and you can argue in that space, but you leave a space for God, but you can't fill the space with any kind of image of God or ideology of God. So it's very much like the opening line of the Tao Te Ching, where Lao Tzu says, the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. So, you know, in Judaism, though this is not the way it's taught, and I'm sure it's not the way you, know, you were taught in the yeshiva, but uh, my understanding of Judaism is uh, that you, you use paradox, you use doubt, you use argument to keep yourself from becoming attached to any specific ism or ideology. And that's really what you know, we're, we're all about. If I can take it one more second, we get the mission of the Jew is laid out in Genesis chapter 12, verse, the first three verses, where God says to Abraham and Sarah, and then through them to the Jewish people in general, uh, you know, it says lech lecha, which is normally translated as go forth. But literally, lech means walk, lecha means to yourself. Mm-hmm. And it says, you know, leave behind your, um, uh, your land, your culture, your tribe, and your parents' house. And the interpretation of that is, is if you really want to find the world as God sees it, which is the rest of the verse, you know, I'll show you the world as, as God wants us to see it. But if, if you're really to see the world through the eyes of God, you have to free yourself from the conditioning of nationality. This is what the Bible says, nationality, culture, ethnicity, and the prejudices and biases and uh, stories that your you know, religion that your parents taught you. And I, today, I think we would add the, the blinders of race and gender and you know, so many other things you could add to it. But when you are free from all of the isms and ideologies, that's when you can see the world as, as we're supposed to see it, uh, as one whole you know, integrated manifestation of the divine. And then in verse 3 of chapter 12 in Genesis, it says, so what? So you have that experience. Now what? And it, then it says, and you shall live, you shall be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And that's how you know you're on the right spiritual path. It's, it's not that you're happy. It's not that you're anything in particular, but that you are living in a way that is beneficial to other beings, all other beings, mm. not just human other beings. Uh, so to do that, I think you really have to continually free yourself from the conditioning of religion and philosophy and politics and, you know, you name it, all the conditions that, that define us. Uh, and that's what paradox and doubt are about. Now, Judaism betrays that in the sense that 
they want you to be Jewish. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you can question everything, but don't give up that. But that's because on a sociological level, that's, that's what tribes do. But if you take it uh, on a spiritual level, it, it really is designed to push you um, beyond any kind of conditioning. Did you, do you have a blog? Did you write something up around the concept of Lech Lecha? Uh, yes, but whether it's in a blog or one of my books or... No All idea. right. Well, we have to. Uh, I very much want to see if we can get that up on our site in some way. So you you lead us to the promised land on that one, would you? Because uh, really, I, I think this is. Track that down. I, I don't. You know, I, I write so much, and I never know. You I need somebody who, to you know to have. Uh, I need a curator. Curator. Yeah, you need a curator. That's what we do with Ramdas. We have. Uh, uh, you know, I I uh, I'm the director of the foundation that works with all of that material and Neem Karoli and, and, all, of and there's a lot of it, thousands and thousands and thousands. And we have somebody I, I specifically. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, we got like to, I'd like to, can I? Yeah, my no, turn? I'm okay. uh, Your turn. You, it's your all right, turn. my turn. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, on the practical level, pragmatic level of dealing with everyday life, you did, you wrote some, a series of stuff that I really loved actually. And it's, it's under the title, how to remove obstacles that limit your life. And again, the, the sort of incredibly pregnant simplicity of this really got to me. I want you to expand upon it. There are four stages, of course, of this. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know. Be still. Be. And, you know, I just love this. And I'm not going to read it out because I want you to, you know, just focus on this for a moment for us as a, a kind of a, Again, a pithy way of, of just releasing some of our listeners from temporary anxiety or, or stuff that they're going through. Because we try and do that and not be, you know, uh, sort of uh, pedagogical or, or, or pontificating about things. But, just, you know, if you're listening to this, uh, we do get feedback from people saying, OK, great, that's lovely. But, you know, I'm still I'm still depressed and suicide. And, you know, and this when I read these four things, I was just, you know, it was a mini transformation right there. So I'd like you to go into those. Okay. So whatever I wrote, I have no idea. So this may <laughs> totally contradict whatever was on the page there. Because I, like I said, I really don't remember one right, thing right. to the next. But, you know, one of the, the problems that I think all of us face is that we are so rarely still. You know, we're, we're running around like crazy. Um trying to, to fill some void in our lives. Uh, and, it's, and it's really an imagined void because the void is just part of the mix. You can't, you know, like, like Lao Tzu would say, you need the hub at the, at the heart of the wheel. So there has to be emptiness in the mix also. But we're, anyway, we're, we're running away from the, the actuality of life and we run away with religions or politics or spiritual practice or any kind of ism or ideology. So the first thing is to just stop running. Uh, don't run toward anything. Don't run away from anything. Be still. And there are lots of ways that human beings have invented over the last thousands of years on how to be still. And there are a lot of teachers, uh, not gurus, not talking about that, but teachers who have who, who practice stillness. And uh, you know, if if you're in the Christian, in a Christian tradition, I would suggest centering prayer. You know, vipassana, mindfulness in Buddhism. Uh, you know, all kinds of uh, 
you know, mantra work, uh, breath work, pranayama in, in Hinduism. Every religion has its, you know, its practices. But something that, in addition to the mantra I was talking about later, you know, earlier, when you just are repeating a phrase to get centered in, and especially in a crisis, but to set time aside every day to actually just follow your breath or count your breath or just to sit and be still is, is where it starts. Be still. And when you are still, you intrinsically know that everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be. Nothing happens against uh, reality, if you like. I mean, you know, you're depressed because the conditions are right for being depressed. So to say I shouldn't be depressed just is, makes you more depressed. Because of course, I mean, especially if we're talking about chemical, you know, brain chemistry kind of depression, not just run-of-the-mill sadness. But the conditions are right, you know, if, you, if your brain chemistry is, is off, but the conditions are right that you're going to be depressed. So be depressed. And then if you don't like being depressed, then you can try to change the conditions. But to simply say, I shouldn't be depressed, and why am I depressed, and I have to not be depressed, that to me is just more depressing. So you know that whatever's happening is happening because the conditions are such that nothing else could happen. And the first thing you have to do is you know, accept um, without any reservation the reality that you're experiencing. So you know, be still and know. And the rest of the, the phrase is, I am God. So for me, that means that, you know, when, when Moses asks God, you know, he's talking to a shrub in, in, uh, in Exodus, he's talking to a bush, and the bush says it's God, and, you know, it's hard to go back to the Egyptian, to the Jews in Egypt and say, well, I was talking to this shrub and said, you know, we should leave. So <laughs> Moses says, you know, so, so what's your name? And God, is, it's the only place that God self-identifies, as far as I know, in the Bible, and God uh, uh, identifies as Ehyeh which most Bible, English Bibles translate as I am. Uh, but there is no, in Hebrew, you can't, you can't say anything in the present tense. Now, there is no am or is in, you know, in Hebrew. So it's, uh, in this case, ehia is future imperfect form of the, the verb I am. But again, you can't really say that. So it's, it's sort of, uh, it, it, the best way, I think, to translate it is I-ing, would be, you know, capital I apostrophe I-ing. So God is this process, but God is the eternal subject. And when you are still, which means the ego is quiet, your story is quiet, you know that you're God. And you're the I that is happening in, with, and as everything. Then you can play with that. So, so if you really know that, then it's done. You don't really need to go on with it. But be still and know that I am God. Be still uh, again, it's, that's the first step. So and then just be, once you realize that you're it, then being it is all there is to it. <laughs> that sounds more profound than I meant it. But, um, <laughs> but just being is, uh, uh, what, revelatory or, I mean, it's, it's, it's the divine happening. So, we want something more, I think, many of us uh, humans. We want something more. And the something more is what screws us up. We, you know, I remember my dad, who died just a few months ago. Allah hashalom, peace be upon him. Uh, my dad would always say, I want you to be somebody. But the implication is, I want you to be somebody else. <laughs> because I already was somebody. <laughs> so he wasn't. 
He wasn't happy with that. So he wanted to be somebody else. I think we're always trying to be somebody else. Uh, and that's uh, unfortunate. As long as we're trying to be somebody else, what we're really trying to do is fit some narrative that we've invented or inherited. And as opposed to drop all narratives and discover that you're the only being there is, you know, God. Hmm. So again, I don't know what I wrote, but this was well, the only thing I you wrote that in, in other words, but you, you do talk, and when you talk about be still, you use the expression vritti nirodha uh, and say, uh, all separation dissolves as the waves of bliss rise and fall through the universe, and yet the practice is not over, which is sort of what you just said, you know, that, that bliss is still a stage and you can't hold on to it. And, uh, yeah, you, really, I don't think you can hold on, you can hold on to anything. Uh, not saying I don't try, but I'm just... Even while I'm doing it, I know how stupid it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's, and I don't want to sound nihilistic, because I think this is, my assumption is, not my experience, but my assumption is if you're really liberated from all of it, you probably would be happy. Um, I think you would even go beyond, though, His Holiness's notion that my religion is kindness. I think, I think kindness is only half the equation. I think you want to say, or I would rather say, my religion, my religion is kindness and, and justice. I think we really need to throw justice into the mix because we can be very kind and allow all kinds of horror to continue. So I think we, we need to throw justice. And that's the Jewish part. Yeah, that's Dalai Jewish. Lama, Dalai Lama is one of the few Buddhists who's not Jewish. That's true. We, won't hold that we have them all on our on MindPod network. We just yeah, Salzburgs cool. and Cornfields and right. Goldsteins. I mean, yeah, we're full of exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Well, I, I I was gonna if Rog, if you have something, but I, I something just tipped me off then about you know I um I wrote. Something about Trump yesterday on Facebook. Much to my, and later, I was a bit freaked out that I did it. But uh, you know, I, what I said was 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 quite harsh. And uh, what I actually said was, you know, I was actually born during World War Two, and my father uh, had a copy of Lord Russell's um, concentration camp books, which were huge things. Not Bertrand Russell, but Lord Russell of Liverpool who was a, a, an astounding human being, who managed to collect all the photographs available from Belson, Buchenwald, Belson and Buchenwald and, and Dachau and Auschwitz. And my father, when I was quite young, showed, they were huge books. They were like at least two feet by one foot big. They were gigantic. Mm. And they were thick. And there were very few of them, but my dad managed to get hold of one copy of them. And he showed, me to, he showed them to me when I was very young and said, this is evil. And just know that this is the worst it can get, pretty much. And this happened, and it happened to us. Okay. So what I wrote yesterday on Facebook was, for all of you who are saying that this guy's a, 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 you know, a circus barker, and a clown, and a, a reality TV person, and he'll never make it, well, all I can say to you is, for 150 days, he's been at the top of the charts. And he's doing very well with a base that is base. And what I wrote was, you know, I, I, I don't want to ferment his stuff back at him of hate, you know. But I'm just telling you that these are all the signs of fascism. Uh, xenophobia, pointing fingers at people, lying, 
And as Goebbels said, if you're going to tell a lie, tell a big lie. And Trump is telling the biggest lies I've ever heard in the political arena. Just blatant lies. And I'm getting pissed off about it, so I wrote this. And then someone immediately wrote back from the uh, Nimmin Crowley satire that I should shut up and, and, and send love to him and uh, that I'm wasting my time and whatever's going to happen is going to happen and the karma is the karma and so on and, and, and so on. And then there were about 30 responses to that <laughs> uh, from people all over the world who were saying, what the fuck are you talking about? We've got to stop this guy. And you can love people, but you've got to be vigilant. I'd like to get your take on this. Yeah, I think that's what I mean by, by you know, kindness and, and justice. Uh, I, I mean, I have nothing really to say about Donald Trump in particular. Uh, but I think it's not just Donald Trump. I think that Americans are scared. I think Americans are, I was almost going to say always scared, but we're not always scared. But we're, our sphere is part of our, of our mix. I mean, you can look at our um, pop culture. You can go back to all the, you know, the John Wayne movies, the John Wayne Westerns, and there's always the Indians taking our women. And, you know, then after that, there's the aliens taking our women. And then after that, there's, you know, somebody else taking our women. Someone's always taking our women. Um, <laughs> and then we have to have the macho guy go and get the women. So, and eventually maybe there'll be a shift and they'll be coming for the men and the macho women will go get the men. But it's always, something's always scaring us. And we are so, and it's not just us that are so easily manipulated by fear. People are easily manipulated by fear. So, um, the, the number, and it's so, so, I mean, Trump does this, Carson does this, Ted Cruz does this. I, well, that's probably all politicians do it to one extent or another because that's a tremendous motivator. If, if I can scare you enough, uh, you'll believe that I can save you and you'll vote for me. But the real response, I think, to all of that should be laughter, humor. That, and and that, that to me is the great tragedy that Jon Stewart left, um, as did Colbert. I mean, they both left at the same time. I'm, I'm sure Trevor Noah is doing a great job and Larry... Um, Gilmore. Gilmore is, is doing a great job, but I don't think it's the same. Now, this could be my, you know, my bias, but whatever it is, uh, to, 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 to laugh at these guys and to laugh at the situation is, is one way to liberate us from it. Um, but we're afraid to do that. And we, we're so, so fearful. Um, and if you're a liberal like I am, you're afraid of the conservatives and you're afraid, you know, I mean, Trump is, I, I just read today in the Wall Street, I think it was, well, I forget where it was, but I was reading today in, in something where they did the math and it's actually only f the base that we're talking, the Republican Party we're talking about, which is a fraction of the American voter. And then it's whatever he is, around 20% of the base. So it comes out to 4% of American um, voting population that is actually, you know, sucked into this. But the media loves it because it's right. just like a train wreck. I mean, if it bleeds, it leads. So, you know, if it's racist and xenophobic, then we're going to go with it. So uh, my fear is fear. <laughs> like right. we have nothing to fear but fear itself. <laughs> and, and we need more humor in this. I mean, we ought to be running. Some people will say that, you know, Donald Trump is a clown. I don't say that. We really need real clowns in there um, to, to, to lighten this up so we don't take all this stuff so seriously. We can see how ludicrous it is what these people are saying. And I don't mean just 
conservative side or the Republican side. There's, there's uh, fear on, on both sides, I think. Though, I think it's more on their side. Uh, so I, I, but I could see us voting somebody in like that. I, I don't, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if we got scared enough, if something happened here, like at 9-11. I mean, we would vote ourselves into uh, another Armageddon situation. I mean, it's just, right. we didn't find another country to invade. Everyone wants to go invade Syria. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's just madness. Mm. Uh, um, but it does point to something that we talk about on the podcast a lot. And, and how, how do we deal with us and them? How do we deal with, we have these people who, yes, we can laugh and we better have a sense of humor. That's obvious. Uh, but at the same time, there's a place in us that's creating a polarization because of the revulsion from hearing any of this stuff and the revulsion on seeing, just seeing them act out, whoever they may be, on, on any side how they act this out and how that creates something in us that is really polarizing. Mm. And, and we, yeah, what do we do? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is recognize that um, they are us. <laughs> you know, I mean, there, there's a part of me that, that cheers Donald Trump, you know, and I have the capacity. You know, you're, you're talking about, you know, the way, um, you know, your dad had those, those books, David, and, and uh, the way the Nazis treated Jews and, and gay people and, and others, Slavs and Russians. And, uh, we do the same thing. It's just human nature. So, you know, I mean, the, the horrible things, and, I, and boy, someone's going to write in if I, if I don't put a disclaimer in here. So I'm not saying that everybody's a Nazi and the Israelis are not Nazis. And, but if you, if you uh, I think if we're really honest about it, humans are humans and humans can do horrible things to one another. And uh, as we will see, as we are seeing a little bit, but I think it'll get worse with Syrian refugees, we're going to have internment camps and we're going to do all kinds of things to keep them out of here or Europe or wherever they're trying to go. And that's just the tip of the iceberg because all this stuff with ISIS is just the beginning. That what's coming is the, is the, the climate refugee crisis. And, and that's going to be uh, more huge than anything we've experienced. And I imagine that, that we're going to get so frightened that there's you know, not enough for us, so we better stop them that we will excuse all kinds of horror mm. in the name of self-preservation. And the only way to stop that, I think, is, well, number one, I think we have to recognize our own shadow side, that uh, push comes to shove, I could be a Nazi. Uh, yeah. you, put the, you know, put me in the right situation. I think, um, what was that, that prison experiment with the students at, uh, was it Dartmouth or print or something? You know, one of the, yeah. the units yeah. back, back in, the, in the 50s, whenever it was. Um, you know, any of us can be turned into that, uh, number one. Number two, this is where I think uh, spiritual practice, not religion, Religion is all about us and them. But spiritual practice, meditation, breaks down the, the story of us and them and breaks down the barrier between me and the other. And, and if, there's, if there's hope, I think that's one of the places that there's hope, that people, if we would, if people would practice meditation, if they would uh, engage in practices that ultimately take you outside the story, that, that free you from the conditioning of 
tribe and nation and, all, and ethnicity and race and gender and you know, your, your parents' biases. There's hope there. Um, but outside of that, I, I don't know. I mean, we don't, even when we've had global narratives, like, I mean, look, you get St. Paul who, and there's, you know, different people writing under his name in the New Testament. But when, when St. Paul says, um, there's no slave, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female in Christ Jesus, I mean, those were the three major sociological divisions. You were Jewish or you weren't. You were a slave or you were a free person. You were um, a male or you were a female. And that's where all the divisions happened in those three categories. And he said, when you enter into the you know, Christ consciousness or the body of Christ or whatever it is, uh, all those things come to an end. And yet Christianity didn't follow that advice. Christianity just became another ism that divided people into another group of us and them. And, and then even smaller groups of us versus them as, as you go into the you know, Protestant Christianity. But uh, the idea is that there is a state of mind. Again, Judaism calls it mochin de godlit, spacious mind. Um, Genpo Roshi in Buddhism, Zen calls it uh, big mind. But there is a state of mind that each of us has access to that does away with this us versus them. And you realize it's me and you and us and them and all of us together. And then there's, there's hope because the planet, even with climate, I mean, I, th I think climate disaster is coming. And it's a question of, do we let it turn us into monsters? I never say animals. Animals would never do what people do. But does it turn us into monsters? Or does it, can, can we do this with compassion and justice? And I, we have a the possibility for, for managing the collapse compassionately and justly is there. Whether we'll do it, I'm not optimistic. But if there is a way to do it, own your shadow and, and practice uh, meditation to get beyond your story. Mm. Mm. Excellent. That's such a great Excellent. answer. I yes. don't know where to go from there. But, you know, um, everything you said, you know, I just read something that in Hertfordshire, in my home country in England, They've now allowed meditation to be taught to children as young as five. And there's no argument. That's what's so interesting, that in that particular county, which is uh, near London, um, there's just joy about this. And little children, five years old, are sitting, and what they're finding is that after the meditations, the children are very joyous. Absolutely. That's just great, isn't it? I mean, you That's know, we, great, and it's cheaper than Ritalin. Which doesn't make you joyous, <laughs> right? But you right. know where I live, in the middle of the, the the beautiful state of Tennessee, yoga is considered satanic, and meditation is dangerous, and you know, and we're we're working desperately to make sure that everyone has a gun wherever they go. So, you know, it's it, yay for London, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> Well, you know, Britain is full of us and them stuff, so that maybe they need it. Because having grown up there, I mean, one of the things that we were inculcated with as as children was that uh, anything outside that small island, that sceptered isle, uh, was inferior, uh, particularly the French. And I'm not kidding. I mean, we were told that, that, you know, and there were all kinds of pejoratives used instead of the actual national name. And it took, it, it took a, a lot of strength on the part of children to say, no, this is, seems wrong to me. Uh, which, you know, some of us did feel that way. Uh, but Tennessee or Alabama or Mississippi, I, I see this, it's there. It doesn't seem to be diminishing. 
And I suppose it's just a long, arduous journey to, to try and, you know, integrate simple, uh, you know, be here now into the, into the children. It seems such an obvious thing to do to me. It would just yeah. calm the classes down to begin with. But then, then the question would be, if the British Empire hadn't gone down the tubes, would they be doing it? if they were still occupying india and you know all these other places you know would they would they be so open-minded who knows but uh, maybe you have to be you have to be (laughs) divested of of that kind of power in order to open your heart that way talk about india uh you were just in india so was i we may have been there at the same time at least a month or so ago what were you doing in Banaras, Kashi, Varanasi. Yeah, uh, I, I was there a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going back next week. Oh, you are? That's right. Yeah, you mentioned yeah, that. Yeah. What? I, I, I came back in the middle for my mother's 87th birthday party, oh, wow. uh, which I suggested we have in India, but nobody else wanted to go. <laughs> um, I was there a couple of weeks ago. It was my third visit. I was there uh, with the uh, Women's uh, uh, Global Peace Initiative. Oh, yes. And... Uh, this is uh, uh, Dina uh, Miriam's amazing group, uh, among other other women. But we don't have to go to a whole thing with that. But but she holds these; uh, they hold these conversations all over the planet on different issues, just to get people who don't normally get a chance to talk to talk. So she pulled together a variety of uh, Muslim, Jain, Hindu, and Buddhist scholars, uh, and and. Uh, religious teachers, leaders, to talk about using the dharma of Hinduism and Buddhism, which is not exactly the same, but they use the word broadly. To, to, is, is there a way to, to use the dharma to create new uh, developmental models for India? And it was really fascinating. Mm. Wow. Uh, and, and she does, and the topic changes, but, but they do some, some amazing conversations. And you never know what comes out of it. It's, it's one of the few things that I do that is not programmatic in the sense that you don't end up with a written statement and you don't, you don't publish something in the Hindustan Times, the we met and this is what you know, we did. Uh, the meeting is simply to start conversations among people who don't get a chance to, to have dialogue. And I was there uh, to moderate a um, couple of hours of, of the discussion. So that's why I was there. I'm going back for a uh, Liberatum gathering in New Delhi. And this is, I think, larger than India. I think it's all Southeast Asia. But it's about, uh, it, this is mostly media tech politicians. And I'm supposedly talking, as far as I know, I'm talking about the future of spirituality in the 21st century. Mm. About which I know nothing, but it's such <laughs> a big topic, you could say anything. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was interesting. So. You know, I... Uh... There's something on my mind when when I first, uh, I mean, I've known about you, uh, and I know uh, your teacher was Zalman Schachter, correct? And I know that he was a, a pretty good friend of Ramdas's. And uh, I had this experience, so as you looked at that book, Love Everyone, and talked to Parvati, we went back to India, we met Neem Karoli Baba, and we met a whole family of people. A couple of them were our mentors. They were uh, people that that really were given to us to... I mean, we were all kids. We were in our early 20s for the most part to uh, bring us up, so to speak. Uh, 
one time, and this is after Maharaji left his body, maybe 15 years, I brought my mother to India to introduce wow. her to India and to, there's a, she's still alive now, a saint named Siddhima, who Maharaji left, take care of all the temples and so on. Incredible, been an incredible mother to us. And so we went up and we visited up there. And then uh, this other man who David knows quite well, his name is K.C. Tuari. Uh, there, he was basically a, a pretty knocked out jungle yogi in the guise of a headmaster of a private school in Nainital. I mean, he had power. He was an amazing, amazing person. We first met him, and we'd be with Maharaji, who would just tap him or look at him, and he would go into these altered states. He'd go into samadhi. So he, he was obviously uh, had been with Maharaji for many births and so on. So we went on a little trip, he, my mother, and I. And we were staying in this amazing place called Jageshwar, way up in the Deodar forest, at a 12th century Shiva temple intact, that nobody had ever got it after it and destroyed it, So it was, it's, which is rare in India. And we were sitting in our room one night, and he was saying to me, you know, you never ever give up your roots and replace your roots with some other religion or tradition. You have to keep your roots and, you know, I was sort of arguing with him a little bit because I had been so disenchanted with Judaism, yeah. as everybody. And uh, I, he came back to me and he kept insisting that this was not a matter of uh, having to pick up whatever you learned as a child. It was a matter of going back into it with a new perspective. So he said to me, and my mother was there, and she was kind of listening to the conversation. He said, listen, I'd like to hear. There must be some prayer that you, that you still know, a Jewish prayer. I don't know much about Judaism, but why don't you sing one? So my mother and I, because we happen to know this particular prayer, we, we started out, En kelohenu, en kadon. There's nothing but God, right? Which I thought... I was going to explain to him, and he would really appreciate this. Right? As soon as we started singing, he went into samadhi. He completely went out. My mother, who had never seen anything like this in her life before, oh my God, what happened to him? And I said, oh, he's just in a little meditative trance. He'll be back. And, and he did come back, and he said, there is absolutely no difference between what you just sang and, and all of these Shiva prayers that you see me doing all the time. And I, just from you who has been so steeped in, in, in Judaism and Hinduism and Buddhism, you've studied, I mean, you've sat Zazen, what is it that, you, that connects you to Judaism that is a practical thing for you in your spiritual life? Well, let me, let me say first, I, I agree with what he said, right? I mean, the, as practices, they all go to the same place if, you're, if you do them deeply enough, I guess. Uh, but what, I mean, you know, as a, as a male Jew, the first thing that attaches me is circumcision. I mean, they branded me Jewish, so you can't escape that. But 
I practice Judaism on a daily basis. I mean, I keep kosher. I observe Shabbat on uh, you know, Friday night, Saturday. I, uh, I'd say I, I wrestle with the holidays, you know, sometimes more or less successfully. But I study Torah every day. I mean, that's not just a passion, but it's, it's really my, my work life because most of my books are around biblical commentary. So Judaism is my root tradition. What I, the way I read Judaism is heavily informed by my experiences in other traditions. So, you know, people will read uh, my commentaries on Ecclesiastes and they'll say, oh, it's very Buddhist. And I will say, you know, my own thing is, no, it's actually what Ecclesiastes is saying. But it took uh, a, a, a Buddhist mindset to see it, you know, maybe something like that. To, to reveal it. But I, I try not, just to stick with the Buddhist metaphor, I try not to put a talit, you know, a prayer shawl around the Buddha and say, okay, this is Jewish. Uh, I, if it's not in the text, then I, I don't pretend it is. So, so the way I read Jewish text and the way I practice the Jewish holidays and the way I, I do the prayers more as kirtan and mantra than as, you know, long blocks of, of, um, of liturgy is all influenced by decades of experience in Hinduism, Buddhism, and, and other practices. Um, but I never stopped being fundamentally Jewish. Mm. And that's, that's always been, you know, my, my mother tongue and my root practice. Mm. Great. So when, when I was with uh, Suzaki Roshi, at one point uh, near the end of my undergraduate work, I was at a sashin with him and it was really near the end and, and, I don't know how he knew, but he knew I was planning to go to graduate school in Buddhist studies, and he thought that was a total waste of time. And he pushed me against a wall, almost literally, and uh, said, you know, you should really just come to, the, to Mount Baldy, to the monastery, learn Japanese, study with him. If you really want to know Zen, do it from the inside out. Don't do it from the outside in. And I had no desire to do that, but I didn't know how to say, I didn't know what to, how to respond, so it was sort of like a koan moment. <laughs> so I just said to him out of the blue, I said, oh, I can't do that, Roshi. I'm going to become a rabbi. And that was, that was news to me. I was becoming a Buddhist, you know, getting a PhD <laughs> in Buddhism. I'm going to become a rabbi. And then he says in his thick Japanese accent, he says, oh, good, be rabbi, be Zen rabbi. I said, okay, I'll be a Zen rabbi. <laughs> oh, how true and but how right now, on. It's still rabbi. Zen is the adjective. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're at the end of our uh, shoe, as they say, uh, but we do want you, uh, people want to connect with Rabbi Rami. Please give us a URL. Yeah, Rabbi Rami. So it's, you know, R-A-B-B-I-R-A-M-I dot com. That takes you to everything. And uh, and a book we would suggest upon uh, Rami's uh, suggestion. The, the latest book is The Golden Rule and the Games People Play. It's by Skylight Paths publications and i'm sure you can get it on you can go to skylightpaths.com you can go to amazon you can go to barnes and noble go to amazon and go through our portal so we there get a go. few shekels <laughs> yeah <that's... laughs> so great to have you and uh, this to meet great. you Happy thanksgiving to you and to everyone who's listening absolutely thank you thank you it's fantastic really all the best have a beautiful day you too take care <laughs>